John 3, beginning in verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enaon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Jesus' public ministry is starting to gain some momentum. If you're counting, this morning's reading is the fourth straight where John emphasizes how what Jesus is and provides exceeds all that has come before him in redemptive history. Jesus is the supreme revelation of God. At the wedding feast in Cana, he took old water and made new wine, such great wine that even the master of ceremonies had to comment, this is better than anything that has come before. And as part of that miracle, symbolically, he uses the water jars from the ritual purifications. And he makes joy and feasting to replace ceremony and solemnity. He renders the old ceremonies obsolete. He shows that purification and celebration come together in him. Then the incident at the temple the first of two in his public ministry. And why shouldn't those circumstances be repeated for emphasis? It is his father's house, a place through which God intended to dwell with his people. And now Jesus is the new and better temple. The whole earth is God's dwelling place with man because God has become man. And even when his enemies tear it down, seeking to abuse and control it just as they do now with the earthly temple. God himself will raise it up in glory in three days, its purposes restored. John highlighted the supremacy of Jesus' salvation as well. It will exceed what God did through Moses in the wilderness. There he saved people's lives through faith. In Christ, he saves their souls. Through water and spirit, Jesus saves his people for eternal life, not just more days on this earth. He is the greater Moses, and he brings a greater exodus to his people. In this morning's text, John highlights the superior purification and effectiveness of Jesus' ministry. 
Jesus and his disciples have left the city. They head into the less inhabited areas of Judea. And like the Baptist and his disciples, Jesus and his set up near popular water sources where there are going to be people coming and going. Both are preaching and teaching. John and Jesus' disciples are baptizing and both are gathering crowds. Now, that these ministries are taking place at the same time is the reason for John's parenthetical comment in verse 24. Since John's gospel was written last of the four, he suspected that many of his readers had already read at least one of the other three. In those, what we call the synoptic gospels, the stories from Jesus' public ministry pick up after the imprisonment of John the Baptist. They don't make much of what Jesus did prior to that. In the synoptics, the order is Jesus is tempted, John is imprisoned, and then Jesus' public ministry is given in detail, each immediately after the other. But John, the author of this gospel, we've already heard, was with Jesus from the beginning of his public ministry, from before the wedding in Cana. So it's fitting that his gospel would include details from the period of time where Jesus and John the Baptist were both ministering publicly. And that's the period of time in which these events take place. So we have this geographical transition in verses 22 through 24, but then the passage quickly turns to conflict. An unnamed Jew starts to stir the pot with some of the Baptist disciples about Jesus' ministry. Now, perhaps these were valid questions. Understanding the meaning of the various baptisms, especially in this transitional time of scripture, is not easy. We recognize that even today. In fact, if you ever read the, from the great Jewish historian Josephus in the first century, he makes a total mess of the meaning of all these baptisms. It's really hard. But it's also possible that the man was looking to create division. Friends, avoid such people. Those who say, did you hear what she said about you? Or can you believe how arrogant he is? Many people in this world speak about others as if everything is a competition and a zero-sum game. For me to be exalted, they must be brought low. For me to be right, they must be wrong. And unfortunately, this can be particularly true over matters of theological precision. Paul said to Titus, avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. He is self-condemned. There's a difference between pursuing right biblical understanding and theological accuracy for it to draw us closer to God and pursuing those exact same things to create distance between ourselves and others. Now, some people will use the possibility of division as an excuse not to pursue biblical truth, and that's not right either. To love God, we must know God. To know him more is to love him more. But the love of God within us should flourish and produce love of neighbor and peace with one another. Not divisions and pointless quarrels. Regardless of this man's intentions, 
the discussion about purification that he starts draws attention to the two ministries, Jesus and John's. And it seems likely that the discussion was on the relative effectiveness of each acts of purification. Whose ministry is better, is more purposeful. And whatever the details, it causes some of the Baptist disciples to imagine a rivalry between the two. After all, prior to Jesus, John had the only game in town. He had the ministry that could draw a crowd. He was the one the people came to see. Now, make no mistake, that's actually still happening. But also, people are beginning to follow Jesus. Some are beginning to leave John and move toward Jesus' preaching. Jesus' disciples are baptizing. And it's not the nuances of baptism or ritual purification. It's this perceived competition that gets the Baptist disciples all worked up. You can tell by their complaint and by John's response that jealousy is at work here. Notice in verse 26, I'm sure none of us has ever done this. They're so mad and jealous, they won't even use Jesus' name. He who was with you across the Jordan. Who talks like that? I'll tell you who. Angry, bitter people. That's who. And I'm sure that even when you are this upset, you would never use hyperbole, but it's exactly what they do. See how they say, all are going to him. Everyone is walking away from you, John. He's taking everything from us. While it's not the main point of this text, there is a useful lesson for us here regarding the dangers of personal loyalty. Loyalty is a good thing. We should be a good friend. We should keep our commitments. We should never betray people for personal gain. But above faithfulness to one another, must always come faithfulness to God. And John's disciples had wrongly ordered those two priorities. And it can even feel sanctified to do it, though it's actually sanctimonious, because so much of the world prioritizes loyalty to themselves above all others. I've got to look after my needs and make sure that they're met. I've got to make sure that I'm getting what I want out of this life. And so for John's disciples, they're not being selfish here for themselves. They're being selfish on account of John and John's ministry. It started honorably enough. The Baptist was the man they were looking for. At least for a time, he was the one God called them to follow and to assist. He taught the truth of God. He was a good man. Yet did they not hear him say? Because he told anyone that would listen that the one who came after him was before him, that he was not the light. He was the one who pointed to the light. And despite his attempts to prepare his disciples, some of them had a very hard time dealing with the light when it came. The increase of Jesus's ministry comes at the expense of John's. And allegiances can be a very difficult thing to change, especially if our loyalties are wrongly ordered. John's disciples' loyalty to him should have flowed from their ultimate allegiance to God. But instead, it seems that their primary loyalty was to John himself and, by extension, to their roles in a successful ministry. 
Circumstances like these are a tough but important test for our faith. I'm sad to say that in previous ministries, I've watched parents or siblings who should have been loyal to God instead stay loyal to family members or friends, even in their unbelief and unrighteousness. There's nothing wrong with family loyalty unless that allegiance exceeds what we have for God and his kingdom. Jesus will have much to say later in the strongest of terms about these loyalties. We can never, ever put any above our devotion to him. And kids, this is harder to do than it might sound. On one level, it seems like what's easy. The preacher's just saying, love God more than other people. Sure. We all want to fit in. We all want to be liked. We all want our friends and family to know that they can count on us in a pinch, how important they are to us. We want to defend our friends and support them no matter what. And it's a very hard question of life that is ever present. What matters most to us? There are a lot of things that matter, a lot of people that matter. But what matters most? Is it loyalty to others and the approval they offer? Is it loyalty to ourselves, getting what we want out of life? Or is it loyalty to God? Will we support our friends, even telling them they're doing the right thing when they go against God's word? Social media has made this so easy. People can post some unbiblical, wicked perspective online and immediately have dozens of likes and thumbs up. Challenging someone's selfish and ungodly perspective, no matter how graciously you do it, is nearly unforgivable in our culture. And so the temptation is to stay silent, even about what we know is right, because it's better to be fit, to fit in than to be seen as disloyal. It's harder than you think, kids. It takes a lot to order our loyalties correctly. It takes a lot to pursue the truth of God with humility. It takes a lot to express that truth with love and grace. It takes the Holy Spirit. So it's a good thing that he's available to us. The disciples are really in a pickle here. The Baptist disciples, they're mad, they're jealous, their priorities are all messed up. And they come to John with their complaints and they apparently expect him to get all worked up with them. And John is animated, but not with jealousy, with joy. His response aims not to stir their controversy, but to gently correct. He answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. Another pastor explains, everyone, God has assigned a place in his eternal plan. Instead of complaining about the success of Jesus, John's disciples should have rejoiced in the fact that the task of the Baptist was being fulfilled. That's what John did. He always kept his ministry in perspective. 
as one that was in service of the greater ministry of Jesus Christ. Nothing mattered more to John than Christ, and that kept all other loyalties in their proper place. The Baptist corrects his disciples first through an aphorism and then with an analogy. Aphorisms, kids, are general truths. They're things like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And John's general truth is this. All gifts come from heaven. Simple enough. And in this context, he means including the calling of your own life. Whatever God has designed to be accomplished in your life for his purposes, this itself is a gift of heaven. God wanted John the Baptist to be, well, John the Baptist. And that means he did not call him to be anyone else. John's disciples felt the way they felt, discontent, because they did not receive their own callings as a gift from heaven. They did not trust that God had given them good enough important enough or large enough roles. Can't you sympathize? In the flesh, it can be so hard to see others succeed where we so desperately want to. Or to see God give gifts and blessings to others that he has not planned for us. But a very thoughtful seminary professor was right when he said, Deep discontent over God's sovereign, wise disposition of people and things reveals not only unbelief, but also the worst form of the oldest sin, the arrogance that wants to be God and to stand where he stands. For reasons of pride or hurt or loyalty, our sinful hearts want us to have God's place of lordship. We want different circumstances and outcomes. We want more glorious roles and rewards for ourselves in this world. And this is the sin of our first parents in the garden. And the temptation to that sin is surely very real to John as well. But by God's power, he resists it. He's content with the role God has given him. And what we see here is that when you are content with your own position and calling, it frees you up to rejoice in the calling and successes of others. Jealousy, envy, and covetousness can all be put away when your perspective on God's will allows you to rejoice in the way he uses and blesses those around you. To drive this point home, John uses an analogy, that of the groom and his best man. Now, I've been to a lot of weddings. I've been to weddings as a family member or friend, as a groomsman. I've been to weddings as a minister. Once, I was even the groom at a wedding. I've never been a best man, but I've watched a lot of them, including my own. And having seen some really good ones in action it's easy to understand what John is talking about here. The purpose of the wedding is for the bride and the groom to be brought together. And the best man works toward that end in whatever ways are needed. The good ones understand clearly that the wedding is not about them. It's not about them getting attention or honor. All is in service to bringing together the bride and the groom. 
Now, in God's plan of redemption, Jesus is that groom. And the church is his bride. The purpose of John's ministry has always been to facilitate the bride and the groom being brought together, to facilitate that union. And as you can often see in the eyes of the best of the best men, that's what gives them joy. John sees Christ begin to gather his people, his bride. And no matter how bitter his disciples feel, this makes his joy complete. The wedding is at hand. This was God's will. This was his redemptive plan coming to fruition. His plan was never that John would increase more crowds, more acclaim to John. His plan was always more of Christ. And because John understood this, and his loyalties were properly aligned, he too believed that less is more. Verse 30, he must increase, but I must Decrease. Less John means more Jesus. Twice here he uses the word must. It's a powerful word in the Greek. This is not a feeling that John has. This is a biblical conviction respecting the will of God. It must happen because it is God's will and his redemptive plan. Less of John is more of Christ, and it must be so. And if we can share in this perspective, it is a mantra that will serve us well. How much better would my interactions be with others if firmly fixed in my mind was Always less of Paul, more of Christ. It would change everything. How quickly could we forgive? How rightly could our loyalties be aligned? How much joy could we find in the success and blessings of others? How great would our trust of God be, even in the most difficult of circumstances? Less of me, more of Christ. This doesn't take away our individuality, the uniqueness with which God made us. He's not looking for automaton robots. He's actually looking for us to be the unique individuals that he's made us to be in Christ. Living for ourselves. What can I get out of this life? What do I need? Or living with improper loyalties. My spouse above all else, my family above all else, my children above all else. This is not what God made and called us to be. And in fact, living that way will always lead to discontent because we will never find what we're after. If we matter more than Christ, 
or family matters more than Christ, or status matters more, or even on July 4th, I hate to say it, if country matters more than Christ, this is the path to discontent. It's the path of John's disciples. Failing to receive the duties God has given specifically to us as gifts from heaven, we will always suffer under the crushing weight of dissatisfaction and coveting what he gives to others. And it's not so for the Baptist because his joy is complete. And ours can be too. Because his joy isn't complete because he's the groom and gets all the attention. That's all Christ. His joy is not complete because his ministry is growing. His ministry is shrinking. His joy is not complete because his esteem has grown so great in the eyes of men. No, Christ must increase and John must decrease. His joy is complete because he's done his duty before the Lord. He saw what God called him to do as a gift from heaven. Even the parts in the flesh that he would not like and could not like. He did what God called him to do and by so doing, he saw Christ's glory. And in that, he was finally and fully satisfied. Whatever you think exists that will satisfy you in this life that isn't Christ. This is a path to dissatisfaction. It can never do it. It's not what it was made for. Only Christ was made so that our joy could be complete so that we could be fully and finally satisfied in him and everything else in life we have to see as being in service to that. So as you think about your life and calling, ask yourself sincerely, can I truly say that less is more? Less of everything else and more of Christ. May God himself do this work in us for our good and for his glory. Amen.